Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. Good morning, Mercy family. It is my joy to be with you this morning. Let me just tell you something. I love mercy worship. Brothers and sisters, it is my joy to be with you this morning. And no, I am not a guest speaker. My name is Joseph Anderson. My wife is Kaylin. We have three kids, soon to be four. And I will be the campus director of Mercy Northeast. And you know what, Mercy? Let me tell you something. I have been fervently, as Pastor Allen said, I have been fervently praying for mercy. It has been my prayer that we will see what happened in the book of Acts happen in this church, that the word of God will be preached for the advancement of the gospel, that the power of God would be revealed for the sake of his glory, and that there would be a gospel awakening in the city of Charlotte. Last week, Pastor Allen preached about what is the unstoppable force of the sovereignty of God. There was nothing anyone could do to stop the spread of the gospel in Jerusalem. And now, Luke, being the master storyteller that he is, addresses the exact same topic with different characters. We flip over to chapter 13, and we see God setting apart Paul and Barnabas for the sake of the gospel. It doesn't say it explicitly, but the mission to the gospel to the Gentiles has begun. And by the end of the chapter, the Gentiles will be rejoicing at the glory of the gospel. But before we get there, we see Paul and Barnabas on their journey to Cyprus. And Luke illustrates how they had gone from synagogue to synagogue, proclaiming the gospel with relative ease until Paphos. Oh, but at Paphos, there was a sorcerer, a worker of dark magic, a false prophet and an opponent of Jesus. You see, the story goes that Paul and Barnabas had been summoned by the Roman ruler of that district. This man was called a pro-counselor, and he wanted to hear the gospel. But at Paphos, the enemy would make his stand. In verse 8, it says that the magician opposed Paul and Barnabas, seeking to turn the Roman ruler away from the faith. But the work of God would not be halted. Satan would learn the hard way that the gospel does not kneel before kings, nor does it bow to sorcerers. Paul, filled with the Spirit, called judgment on this man. And he was struck blind, a pair of darkened eyes to match his darkened heart. Scripture says that the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, the gospel would not be stopped. But if we look closely, Luke, the author of Acts, does not attribute the belief of the proconsular to the work of, of judgment worked before him. Look closely at verse 12. It says that the proconsular believed for or because he was astounded at the teaching 
of the word. There is a type of preaching empowered by the spirit that illuminates our dead hearts into beating with astoundment at the glory of God. In our portion of scripture today, Acts 13, verses 13 through 41, we will see Paul's first recorded sermon. And what we have modeled before us is God-saturated, God-exalting, God-glorifying preaching in which Paul would accentuate the supremacy of God in his sovereignty, where he affirms the grace of God in his choice, and he articulates the faithfulness of God through the fulfillment of the promise. The main idea of the sermon today is that God sovereignly ordains everything, graciously choosing those he loves for the sake of the promise. So what we'll see today are these three things. Repeat them after me. Sovereignty, Sovereignty. choice, Choice. fulfillment. Let us pray to that end. So Father, you know how weak and useless I am apart from you. But God, I am so thankful that I do not have to do this apart from you. So God, would you move forward and move me to the background? Oh God, would you be exalted in the preaching of your word? Would you be glorified? I pray that you would bless my lips with clarity. And that you would take your word, your gospel, and transform the hearts and minds of these people. Oh God, we pray. All this in your perfect name, Jesus. Amen. In verses 13 through 15... Paul and Barnabas arrive in Antioch, and as was their custom, they attended their local synagogue. Scripture says that after the reading of the law and prophets, the rulers of the synagogue asked them to speak. And as a result, they would hear a message that far exceeded any message they had heard before in that synagogue. Paul stands and addresses this this group of Jews and God-fearing Gentiles, and his first point being this that God has sovereignly ordained history and his gracious choice of Israel to reveal the promise. We pick up in verse 17. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel, the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. It would be no overstatement to assert that the book of Acts was written to accentuate the sovereignty of God. And texts like this validate that reality. In the first seven verses, God is referred to no less than 16 times. What Paul is holding before our eyes is God's sovereign control over history. See the verbs attributed to God. God chose. God made them great. God led them out. God put up with. God destroyed. God gave an inheritance and judges and kings and David. And God gave Jesus. 
There is something awe-provoking about the sovereignty and supremacy of God. That we can know that there is a being who is crafting every detail of history. Hear what God says about God in Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. He says, I am God, there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and the ancient times to things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. So not only does God have a design for the world, but he has the ability to accomplish it. In his infinite wisdom, he has crafted purpose and in his infinite power, he brings it about. So be still and know that the crafter of history is not caught off guard by corona. He is not surprised by your joblessness, nor is he overwhelmed by your depression. Hear me, mercy. Regardless of your circumstance, God is in control. Paul wants us to grasp the sovereignty of God, how he literally brought one nation to superior status within another. Then he delivers them despite their military disadvantage. And as if that was not enough, he gives them someone else's land as an inheritance, proving that the land belonged to God all along. Seated on the throne of heaven, know that there is a holy, righteous, all-powerful, triune God. And get this, brothers and sisters, this God who is powerful and seated on high is for us. This is the fifth and most important way that God manifests his sovereignty. See how he has chosen Israel. What we will observe in the text is that all of God's actions towards Israel are grounded in God's sovereign act of choosing them in unconditional love. God is not only the God of Israel in a sense that they have chosen him out of a number of other eligible deities. On the contrary, the relationship between Israel and God is based solely on the reality that God unconditionally loved them. Verse 17 and 18 says that God chose Israel. He made them great. He delivered them and he bore with them. But the why is just as important as the what. What we must comprehend is this. That God's choice of Israel influences every other interaction that he has with them. We should recall Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. What we must see is the connection between love and choice. And see that God chooses this lowly nation. He says that it is because the Lord loves you. Keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Before God chose him, who was Abraham but a godless idol worshiper? Who was Isaac but the second born son? Who was Jacob but a spineless deceiver? But in shocking turn of events, God chose Abraham, this obscure man, and raised him and preferred him above every other created being. It is not just for sovereignty that God acts, brothers and sisters, but his actions are motivated by his love toward us. Do you see how it is his love that exalted and delivered Israel from Egypt? 
how it is his love that caused him to endure with them in the wilderness. In the Old Testament, when God forgave and pardoned sins, it was often accompanied by this statement. God remembered his covenant, which could also be stated. He remembered that he had chosen them. It was for love that God removed seven nations for the inheritance of another. One commentator commentator highlights it this way, that it is no small matter for a land to be deprived of her inhabitants that she might receive a stranger. But God chose Israel and his grace towards them continues in verses 20 and 21, where it says all this took about 450 years and he gave them judges, prophets, and kings. And if you're familiar with scripture, scripture tells us that Israel asking for a king was a denial of God's good and faithful provision. Being the prodigal son, being the prodigal child that they are, they squandered their inheritance. But God, like the good father in the parable, continued to provide. We see this in the repetition of he gave, he gave to Israel. And we see God's choice of Israel building to a climax as God raises up David. The grace of God is becoming more and more apparent now. As Paul, for the first time in his entire sermon, lingers on a point. Some say that the gracious act of raising up David apart from the Exodus was God's most gracious act to Israel. And we almost feel the urgency as Paul accentuates the grace of God with his words as he identifies David as the son of Jesse. Because Jesse herded sheep. And a sheep herder in ancient times was the least desirable occupation. But see how God flexes his sovereignty and his choice of David the way he similarly chose Israel. Choosing to love the least of the shepherd boys, saying of him, I have found David, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. And at this point, the glory of the gospel will no longer be contained. Paul has landed on David with good reason, for it is his springboard to dive into the deep pool of Jesus. In verse 23, he gets to the point. It is the bedrock of his entire sermon. He says, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he has promised. God's power and sovereignty and his wisdom and choice are all for the purpose of his promise that he may be worshiped and glorified for all eternity as faithful. God made a promise to David in 2 Samuel 7 saying that I will raise up your offspring to succeed you and I will establish his kingdom forever. So see this, saints. Jesus is the royal Messiah, and the final kingdom has arrived with him. Paul has dropped the equivalent of a bomb on this Jewish synagogue, seizing the opportunity to present the faithfulness of God in the Old Testament where all the expectations of the Messiah are presented in Jesus. And it is important to note that Paul's message is distinctly Jewish. In order to avoid a connotation of a political deliverer, he avoids altogether the word Messiah because the promised king would not sit on an earthly throne, but instead he would be exalted into the heavens, bringing liberation for our greatest enemy, sin and death. 
All that Paul has said until now has been in service of this point. For the sake of the promise, God endured Israel's murmuring and idolatry in the wilderness. For the sake of the promise, he destroyed seven nations so that they could receive the inheritance. See the intricacy of Paul's argument as he accentuates their inheritance. The inheritance was literally called the promised land. So what Paul is highlighting for us is that God keeps his promises. In this way, the land functions as a precursor for salvation. So we may rejoice, brothers and sisters, that God is a man of his word. He is faithful to every word that he speaks, and he is intentional in the work of his hands. So let me ask you, mercy, are you trusting him? Are you meditating on his sovereignty? Are you allowing his faithfulness to overcome your fears? Like, really, is your hope for the salvation in Christ or the cure for the corona? Or is it an economic upswing or a bullish market? Brothers and sisters, observe the text. See how God has divinely crafted history for the purpose of salvation. See how the history of Israel reveals how God sovereignly saves us. For just as God chose and exalted Israel, he has chosen and exalted us. Ephesians 1.4 says that even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And just as he endured with Israel, he has promised to endure with us because 1 John 1.9 says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And just as he forgave and destroyed the enemies of Israel... He destroyed our greatest enemy, sin and death. And better than any judge or king, God has given us the Holy Spirit who will lead and guide us. So yes, God has sovereignly crafted history to reveal to us the promise and don't miss the principle that all that God has done and all that he is doing, he does in his sovereign choosing for the sake of the promise. So when your life is in a whirlwind, cast your anchor into the depths of God's sovereignty. Knowing that he is working all things together for the good of those who love him. Our God is faithful to keep his promises. And we see this most clearly in the cross. Paul continues arguing that God has sovereignly ordained the cross and his gracious choice of Jesus to fulfill the promise. We pick up in verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who lived in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him up from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up from him, to had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. Coming out of these verses, we should observe two things. The scandalous condemnation of Jesus 
and Paul's insistence on the historical validity of these events. And once again, the emphasis is placed on the sovereignty of God. Here, God's sovereignty is contrasted, however, with the perceived autonomy of man, saying in verses 27 that because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, they fulfilled them by condemning him. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is destruction. Feel the discomfort of the Jews who sat before Paul as they squirmed in their seats. This was an outright condemnation of the religious leaders. One commentator says it like this, Paul emphasis is on their guilt. For it was not an inadvertent failure to recognize who he was, but a studied and deliberate rejection of all he was. The people's ignorance was not simply a lack of knowledge, but a false understanding. It was a clinging to a way of knowing and thinking and an exaltation of what seemed right in their own eyes. You know what, brothers and sisters? I fear we're more like them than we would like to admit. How often do we neglect the word of God for our own opinions? Or how often do we reject the ways of God for our own preference? What we must see is the danger of arrogance. The very ones who had heard the scriptures every Sabbath, the ones who had memorized the first five books of the Bible, they rejected and did not recognize Jesus. Instead, they unwittingly fulfilled the words of the prophets. Scripture had proclaimed that the Messiah would be betrayed. Scripture had proclaimed that the Messiah would be hung on a tree. Scripture had proclaimed that the Messiah would suffer at the hands of men. And instead of recoiling from involvement with such evil, they messed around and killed God. Brothers and sisters, hear me. Our sin corrupts completely. See how their sin nature used their religion to make them blind to the only real way of salvation. Even studying the scriptures did not enable them to recognize Christ, emphasizing how desperately they needed him. And as, as if that's not crazy enough, God ordained all of it. So one might ask, well, if God ordained it, how are the Jews responsible? Yet see how the answer validates the breadth of scripture, that it is not ultimately our works that condemn us, but is the wickedness of our hearts. What angered the Jews and drove them to kill Jesus was their comprehension of this reality. The exaltation of Christ equals the surrender of our self-sufficiency, and they wanted to be their own. God. So what Paul is exposing before our very eyes is the shallowness and brevity of human autonomy. In the end, we all do the will of God. The question is, do we do it willingly? Acting in ignorance, the people of Jerusalem played a pivotal role in exalting Jesus as Messiah. So see God's sovereignty on display. The more violently they sought to extinguish Christ, the more fervently they proved him to be the Messiah. Paul addresses this apparent failure of Jesus in Jerusalem head on. 
This was not a dereliction of duty on God's behalf. On the contrary, God ensured that the Jews so handled Jesus that every single prophecy of scripture was left fulfilled in Christ. Yes, the Jews were culpable, but it was God who was ultimately responsible. He planned the death of Christ long ago, and he declared it through the prophets. So get this, brothers and sisters, God planned, ordained, and executed the working of the cross. In other words, God killed God. Isaiah 53.10 says that it pleased God to crush him. So why? Why would it please God to crush Christ? Bear with me, brothers and sisters. I promise the answer is worth the wait. For now, we continue. In verses 32 through 34, Paul links the resurrection to God's choice of Jesus and the promise. Remember, those are the three things that we are camping out on. Verse 32 says, and we bring you the good news that God has proclaimed, that, God, that what God has promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, his children, by raising Jesus. Also, it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. Here we see God's choice of Christ. The reality that all of scripture was fulfilled in Christ proves God's sovereign choice of him. Let me repeat that. The reality that all of scripture was fulfilled in Christ proves God's sovereign choice of him. Jesus is the promised seed of Genesis 3, the blessing to the nations of Genesis 12, the wonderful counselor of Isaiah 9, and the eternal king of 2 Samuel 7. And don't miss this. Paul asserts that God fulfilled his promise by raising Jesus from the dead, which leads us to this reference of Psalm 2. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. In Psalm 2, Christ is highlighted as God's son, not only in essence, but in choice. Think back to Matthew 3.17, right? We see the skies break open, the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus and God's majestic announcement. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Now see how Paul intricately links Psalms 2 to the resurrection. His point being that in God's resurrecting of Christ, he has proclaimed to the world, this is my son, and I have begotten him, emphasizing his choice of Jesus. And he continues this line of thinking in verses 34 and 35, where he says, And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another Psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. So according to Paul, the Old Testament also speaks of Jesus' resurrection in Isaiah 55, 3 and Psalm 16, 10. Right? I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David and you will not let your holy one see corruption. So the question is, how do these two verses speak to the resurrection of Christ? Tim, brothers and sisters, the Bible loves it when we ask a question. Let us first consider how the holy, what the holy and sure blessings of David are. 
They must certainly be God's promise to establish an eternal kingdom and throne, right? A, a kingdom that would last for all eternity. So let's try and follow Paul's logic. The promise of an eternal kingdom can only be fulfilled by one who is no longer susceptible to death. So by raising Jesus from the dead, God demonstrates that he has truly accomplished the promise by bringing forth a son who would abide forever. In Christ, death is swallowed up and we cry with the scriptures, oh death, where is your sting? Verse 36 continues that for David, after he had served the purposes of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with the fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God has raised up did not see corruption. God's promise of the resurrection to David has been fulfilled in the greater son. God did not choose to fulfill his promise in David. To this day, David's bones lay decaying in a tomb. And the Greek makes it clear, God willed it that way. According to the purposes of God, David's body was eaten by worms in order that it would be clear that the promise would not be fulfilled in him. Oh, but there is another. And he whom God has raised up did not see corruption. Saints, make no mistake, Jesus was dead, dead. The removal of his body from the tree and its placement in a tomb underlie the reality of Christ's death. He was laid in a place both famous and known to his adversaries. They set guards around his grave to ensure his corruption. But what did verse 30 say? But God, the adversaries of Christ had reached their extent of their role in the story. They were in essence written out of the show as the final act was reserved for God's miraculous and conclusive work. See the faithfulness of our God on display. Not one promise was left undone. Which brings us back to the question, why did it please God to crush Christ? The simple answer is twofold. Because we are sinners and because God loves us. Our sin had separated us from our creator We have become haters of God and lovers of self. And in response, God sent Jesus. Scripture says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ was not guilty. We were. See how Paul emphasizes Jesus' innocence. They found no guilt in him in verse 28 because there was no guilt to be found in Christ. And yet, God ordained his crucifixion. Christ is the innocent Messiah punished as condemned criminal. So see the beauty of the gospel, that because we were sinners destined for God's wrath, God sends Jesus, who empties himself into the form of a slave, subjects himself to hatred and hunger, He then proceeds to live a perfect life, all that he might suffer the fate of sinners. Our gracious father sent our willing savior and laid on him the sin of every man. He who knew no sin became sin in order that we might become the righteousness of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21. But he did not stay dead. 
He received the holy and sure blessing of David. Let us observe verse 34 just one more time. It says, I will give you, put your finger on that word, you. I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. And we have alluded to earlier that this you in the verse is Jesus, and it is. But the you is also David, and the you is also us. Brothers and sisters, the you in this text is plural. Therefore, the implication of God choosing Jesus is that he has also chosen us. God says in 1 Peter 2 that we are our chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into marvelous light. See the implications of Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension in verse 38. He says, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed from by the law of Moses. So hear me today, Christian and non-Christian alike. In Christ, there is forgiveness of sins to all who believe. And in Christ, there is freedom from everything that we could not be free from in our attempts to keep the law. We can never repay the debt we owe. But Christ has done it. Oh, the depth and beauty of the gospel. Is this not good news? That for his glory and for his honor and for the joy that laid before him, Christ our Savior purchased sinners and is in the grave no more. He is alive. He is alive, brothers and sisters. So here's my so what. Here's the question that must press in on your heart. Have you trusted in Christ, our risen Savior, for the salvation of your soul? I plead with you, brothers and sisters. Do not hear the beauty and glory of the gospel and go away unchanged. Paul concludes in verses 40 and 41. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about you. Look, you scoffers. Be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days. A work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. So hear me, brothers and sisters. God has done a wonderful work. Trust and believe. Let us pray to that end. Oh God, your gospel is glorious, it is beautiful. It is the hope of our salvation and the anchor for our souls. Oh God, I pray that you would take the words of this feeble man and that you would do the miracle of raising dead men and women to life. And that you would do the miracle of satisfying and sustaining your church in the midst of this crazy world. We need you. We trust you and we thank you for the gospel. We love you. We pray all of this in your perfect name. Jesus, amen.